Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome everyone to episode 57 of True Blue Crime. My name is Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How you doing? Hi, good. I'm um, feeling for all my hay fever buddies out there because spring is well and truly hit and whoever's sniffling along with me, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> Bust out the Zyrtec, you reckon? <laughs> exactly. It's all that's going to get us through the next three months, guys. We got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, actually, I felt a little bit of that today now that you mention it. I... Uh, hadn't given it much thought, but you might have just solved that one for me. So Yeah. Yeah. The sun, you know, the getting your legs out, getting your arms out, it's nice, but it comes with some sniffles. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can uh, you can put that clever mind of yours to solving this one today. We've got a, a intriguing unsolved heist to uh, to talk about, but we've also got some Patreon shout outs. Yes. Thank you so much and welcome to Sri Paul, Sylvia Ashley, Helen Cunningham. Oddie Riesinger, and Jeremy Raymond. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. Today, we're talking about an infamous bank robbery, a heist that occurred in New South Wales back in 1978. This year, Malcolm Fraser was Prime Minister. The Sydney Hilton was bombed in a devastating terrorist attack, the first noted on Australian shores, and around 70% of our population had converted to coloured televisions. But it would be the old school art of safe cracking that we'd see hit its peak, specifically weak point drilling during this time, when a calculated and sophisticated crime spree took place across Victoria and New South Wales. Friday the 23rd of November 1978, Mwilimba, New South Wales. Inside the branch of the Bank of New South Wales, the crew of thieves worked quickly and quietly. They bypassed the combination lock of the vault and made their way inside. Shrouded in darkness, one of the bandits drilled into the safe, just above the lock, to expose the tumblers. From here, he could manipulate them and gain access. Another thief cut a hole into the second floor of the building as a backup escape plan but they wouldn't need it. Stuffing the paper notes into cardboard boxes, the gang split, 
jamming the vault door in their wake, over $1.7 million richer than when they entered. Often shortened to Ember or Merba, Mwilamba is a town of around 10,000 people situated on the Tweed River in the Tweed Shire, New South Wales. It's quite close to the Queensland border, just half a dozen kilometres or so away. It's in the very northeast of the state and much closer to Brisbane than it is Sydney. The Calabi people were actually the first to live in the region. By the 1840s, lumberjacks were occupying the area for its bountiful natural resources. By 1902, Mwilamba had been declared the centre of a local government municipality. Modern-day Mwilamba's bread and butter is tourism and sugarcane, although coffee and tropical fruits have also been grown in the area. The town itself has a very Art Deco feel in terms of its buildings, plenty of cafes and boutiques to visit. There's also a pretty well-known Hare Krishna chapter in the area, alongside a few other lifestyle retreats. Mwilamba has also suffered from a number of floods over the years, despite a number of levees protecting a large part of the town. The south in particular is vulnerable in times of heavy inundation. March 2017 saw the worst inundation of the past century, when rainfall from Tropical Cyclone Debbie overflowed the upper catchment of the Tweed River and subsequently breached levees. The south was evacuated, but levees managed to hold to protect the CBD, but only just. And speaking of Mwilamba's CBD, that's the location of where the tale we're discussing today takes place. And it's a tale that really put Mwilamba on the map in many ways, probably what it's best known for. And that's the robbery of the Bank of New South Wales branch in 1978. It's a fascinating case which remains unsolved to this day. The robbers stole around $1.7 million from the bank when they broke in after hours and used a very clever, sophisticated method to steal their loot. And this was the only real clue they left behind, their modus operandi, which included the use of circular electromagnets which clamped onto the side of the vault and a diamond-tipped drill to bore in just above the tumblers of the lock. This led to them being dubbed the Magnetic Drill Gang. So we're going back to Saturday, November the 24th, 1978, a sleepy Saturday morning in the quiet town of Mwilamba, and a security guard conducting his routine patrol goes to conduct a check at the Bank of New South Wales. This was a big building on the corner of Mwilamba and Brisbane Streets. What the security guard noticed, however, would turn his usual Saturday on its head. The back door to the bank was open, which was unusual, and I presume at this time the bank wouldn't have been opened on Saturdays. So the security guard contacted the local police after a cursory inspection, and when the boys in blue arrived, it was looking like a robbery had occurred or at least been attempted. The vault door was actually jammed shut, and the combination lock dials and the safe handle had also been removed. So the robbers had certainly made things difficult for the authorities to even see what had occurred. Bank staff were called in to consult and notified police that the safe and the vault were Chubb branded. A pair of specialist locksmiths from the Chubb Vault Company in Brisbane were flown down immediately to inspect the scene and to try and get in so police and bank staff could assess the damage. 
but the Chubb locksmiths couldn't get in. Their locksmithing finesse wasn't working due to the hurdles these robbers had put in place. So some brute force was required at this point. Police called in some local council workers, an engineer and a pair of local workmen, as I understand. These guys used drills and sledgehammers to bash through four layers of brickwork and, ironically, the steel wall of the vault using a diamond-tipped drill. And they used that to get in and see what the damage was. It took some time since the 7.30am notification from the security guard, nine hours in fact, when at 4.30pm the bank manager stuck his head through the hole in the wall and confirmed that they'd got the lot. $1,763,400 the robbers had made off with, all in untraceable notes and it appeared they knew where and when to strike, which they had done quietly and precisely in the nighttime hours of the late Friday evening, early Saturday morning the day before. This was a huge amount of money back in 1978. Even today, that's a whopping sum. Back at this time, though, the Mwilimba branch of the Bank of New South Wales was a major collection point for old notes in transit on their way back to the Reserve Bank, Smaller branches from the area would send loads of the cash to the branch for one central collection. The money had arrived just the day before. It was actually on that Friday from a number of bank branches throughout northeast New South Wales. So it appeared the robbers had some knowledge of this. Detective Sergeant Bob Jackson said that the theft was a very professional operation and had been very well planned. The robbers would have been inside the bank for a number of hours to complete the task they had. One of them would have worked on disconnecting the combination lock of the vault, while another cut a hole through the second floor of the bank as a potential escape route should they be caught in the act. Then they'd used quite the standout method of actually cracking the safe before taking off with the cash. The aforementioned electromagnet was used to clamp onto the side of the safe and then they hooked up the diamond tip drill to the electromagnet. This drill was a super powerful piece of equipment and they used this to bore a hole just a touch above the tumblers of the lock. This was said to be quite a delicate thing to do as even a couple of millimetres off and you could damage the lock to the point where you'd have to abort the heist. Through the hole they could then see in and manipulate the tumblers to open the safe and they used more specialised equipment to do this aspect which we'll touch on in some later connected reports. Police detectives were called in and worked leads to the bone. They theorised that these crims had likely driven from surfers on the Gold Coast to complete the job and then driven back there to their base, which would have been a good spot to hide out and blend in with the tourist crowds. But try as they might, police were unable to turn over any strong leads in the case. The only solid one they had was the sighting of two men, some reports said three, near the bank around 9.30pm on the Friday evening. These guys were reportedly driving a Holden HQ panel van. Working with the witness who saw these men, police came up with two identikit images to circulate in the press in hopes of someone recognising them and coming forward with information. But that didn't happen. Evidence of the crime was today readily visible inside the bank where workmen spent most of yesterday breaking into the strong room to confirm the robbery. The hole they had made was roughly covered by a large sheet of paper with the safe door, which thieves had stripped of its locks and handle, standing ajar. 
But it was business as usual for the staff, although notices had been displayed asking customers to excuse any inconveniences the events of the past two days had caused. But while police now have a good picture of how the robbery was achieved, one of their biggest hurdles now is to trace the movements of the thieves after they left the bank. The bandits had at least nine hours in which to make their escape before the robbery was confirmed yesterday afternoon. Police still cannot be sure whether the thieves are in the district or have fled interstate or even overseas. From accounts given to police by a number of witnesses, the thieves could have been three men who were seen in the vicinity of the bank on Wednesday night. But according to Detective Sergeant Eric Strong of the Lismore District Police, one of the strongest leads remains the connection between the Mwilumbar robbery and other safe crackings in New South Wales and Victoria. I don't know that uh, it could have been prevented if these fellows uh, set their target on a particular bank, uh, that is the older banks, it's uh, quite probable that they'll uh, get in. Isn't it uh, surprising that in that time that there's no witnesses at all or no uh, stronger leads as to uh, exactly what did happen? No, I, uh, I wouldn't agree that there were no witnesses. We have a number of witnesses. We're chasing up various leads, uh, both motor vehicles and uh, people. We just, uh, at this stage, it's a little fragmented and has to be uh, put together and uh, we have to check uh, the various witnesses. We have seen three men in an area. Two people have seen three men in uh, areas near, near the bank. Uh, one man on his own near a motor vehicle was seen near the bank. and. Uh, to uh, identify these people as being the same suspects or even suspects at the bank is a matter requiring a lot of legwork from our fellows. One of the big questions that arose during the early stages of the investigation was how come it had taken until 7.30am to spot the door ajar? Why hadn't there been patrols throughout the night? This led to speculation that perhaps the robbery was an inside job. Joan Cussell, a researcher for the Mwilumba Historical Society, worked at another bank just down the road from the Bank of New South Wales. Joan had left that job the year prior to have children. Joan said it was just a huge deal for this small area. A lot of people were fascinated. It was just a huge amount that was stolen. There was a sign out the front of the bank the next morning which said we apologise for any inconvenience and that was a bit of a giggle. People thought it was an inside job, and that went around town for quite a while. The fact that it hasn't been solved, it makes you feel as if something has been hidden or swept under the carpet. Despite this local suspicion, some people still capitalised on the newfound infamy the town had gained from the robbery. A song was written about the events, featuring the lyrics, They came, they saw, they conquered, and then they all shot through and merchandise and paraphernalia was marketed and sold, T-shirts, calendars, beer mugs, coffee cups, etc. Former Mayor of the Tweed Shire, Max Boyd, he wasn't a fan of the fame the crime had brought to the town. He said, It's not the sort of thing that you jump for joy about. I didn't see it as any great thing for Mwilumba. The crooks knew that the Mwilumba branch of the Bank of New South Wales kept cash supplies from the other banks in the area, so someone must have told them this, as why would they target a country branch? Max, like Joan, confirmed that many locals thought it was an inside job. In 2017, the aforementioned Historical Society in Mwilumba 
published a newsletter reporting the unusual transfer of a senior Sydney policeman to the small town just five months before the robbery. This was Max Willoughby who reported this. He was the treasurer of the Historical Society at the time. This senior police officer, who is not named, retired a short time later in 1979, but he was later involved in a royal commission into alleged intercepted telephone conversations and was found to have been deliberately untruthful in regards to admitting links he had with a man named George Freeman. Freeman was a well-known crime figure from Sydney. He ran illegal casinos, which were said to have been protected by policemen on the take. Freeman also had a wide-ranging criminal network, branching down into Victoria, where a certain suspect, we'll get to shortly, lived at the time. Despite all of this, there was no evidence linking this police officer, Freeman, or anyone really, to the Mwilumba bank robbery. A $250,000 reward was offered for information leading to the solving of the crime, but no one has ever been charged and it remains unsolved to this day. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. So the Magnetic Drill Gang, whoever they were and however many of them there were, they'd gotten away with the loot. And they'd done it using their signature method of an electromagnet clamped to the side of the safe and a diamond-tipped drill. But when had this become their signature? What other jobs had they committed where they developed this skill? Police believed the gang's swag of heists began quite some months and possibly even years earlier. They attributed 12 to 14 other raids and robberies to the gang in which this same method of operation had been used. Police's belief was that the gang had honed their unique craft by practising on a Chubb-branded safe. All of the robberies they committed involved Chubb safes, and they had stolen one of these safes during a Melbourne job. Chubb was a popular brand, but still, there were other brands of safes, and it became clear over time the gang were targeting Chubb ones in particular. It was reported that police believed the gang had nabbed over $1 million in the past from robberies across Melbourne and Sydney. Two of the biggest halls were in Melbourne, one was an American Express office, the other a manufacturing jeweller. They'd taken $350,000 from American Express and a quarter of a million in precious stones and metals from the jeweller. I had a look for some old newspaper articles on these two heists to see if we could 
find some details because there's nothing really online about them. And I located an article from the Sydney Morning Herald dated the 29th of March 1978, which we'll read from directly now. This is an interesting article because it explains a bit more about the equipment the gang were alleged to have used. A highly organised safe-breaking gang using rare drilling equipment escaped with more than $230,000 in cash and traveller's checks after an Easter weekend raid on the American Express office in Melbourne. Police believe the theft was the work of the Magnetic Drill Gang, a group of sophisticated criminals who have stolen about $375,000 in recent months. They say the gang is responsible for 10 safe break-ins in Melbourne and at least one in Sydney. The gang uses electromagnetic drilling equipment to open safes. Interpol has told Melbourne police that the gang's methods are unique. Only 66 of the German-made drills have been sold in Victoria in the past two years. Using the high-power drill, the gang can penetrate heavy bolts to within 5mm of the crucial point of the locking mechanism of the safe, from where the tumblers can be manipulated. The robbers also use medical equipment, including a fluoroscope and a cystoscope. The fluoroscope is used to study the tumblers of a safe before drilling begins, the cystoscope to look through the drilled hole into the lock. An attachment is then used to manipulate the tumblers. Senior Detective David Duggan of the Melbourne Police Breaking Squad described the gang's methods as technically sophisticated and highly professional. The gang struck when the city was quiet and the American Express office in Collins Street was deserted. Staff discovered the robbery when they returned to work yesterday morning. A heavy safe in a basement of the building had been neatly cut open and travellers' checks worth at least $215,000 and $15,000 in cash were missing. Detectives found two holes drilled into the door of the safe, apparently with a precision bit. The chief of the CIB administration, Detective Superintendent E.R. Janinsky, said the travellers' checks included some drawn on the American Express company. The stolen checks are redeemable anywhere in the world. The gang broke into the office through a laneway door which was almost obliterated from view by huge piles of rubbish, the residue of Melbourne's garbage strike. According to police, the gang then cut a lock from an inner door before breaking into the basement of the office using a jimmy. They then used their precision equipment to open the safe. The thieves ignored a second heavy safe in the room which was stacked with open around-the-world plane tickets. Forensic Science Police checked the room for fingerprints, but last night there were no leads to the identity of the gang members. Senior Detective Duggan said security arrangements at the American Express office were very poor. He said police were concerned about security in many Melbourne offices. So that's some very interesting details on the American Express robbery. It sounds like a pretty firm connection to the magnetic drill gang who raided the bank in Mwilumba, going by the unique MO at the time. The next one was the jewellery heist. I found an article also from the Sydney Morning Herald dated 22nd of August 1978, which we'll now read from directly too. This article is very interesting as well, but there are some different numbers quoted in terms of the estimated value of the jewellery. Victoria's magnetic drill gang lifted its takings to nearly $1 million in a weekend jewellery raid in Melbourne. Police said yesterday the gang's latest haul, estimated to be worth $500,000, made it one of Australia's biggest ever breaking gangs. 
The gang stole diamond rings and other jewellery from a fifth-floor jewellery manufacturer's office at Askew House on Lonsdale Street in the city. They used their electromagnetic equipment to break into the office safe of John A. Morris Proprietary Limited and took gold engagement, wedding and eternity rings, diamonds, rubies and other jewellery. The gang got into the building through a rear window. The breaking is the 12th credited to the gang in the past 17 months, 11 in Melbourne and one in Sydney. Its last robbery was during the Easter holidays when it drilled open a safe at the American Express Travel Service office in Melbourne and stole about $245,000 in negotiable travellers' checks and cash. Police said checks with Interpol earlier this year showed that the electromagnetic drilling method had not been used outside Australia. So this jewellery heist was just a few months before the Mwilumba bank robbery, the Amex theft just a few months before that in May of 1978. So that's a bit of info, scarce as it is, that we found on two of these larger heists the magnetic drill gang were connected with. But even with all that cash lining their pockets, the gang didn't ride off into the sunset with their takings. They were reported to have been foiled in this next article, mid-robbery, while trying to knock over another bank. This was about one year on from the Mwilumba robbery. Reading from the Canberra Times article now, published on December 20, 1979, entitled Magnetic Drill Gang Suspected of Break-In. Breaking squad detectives believe the Mwilumba Magnetic Drill Gang may have struck again. Detectives went to a Melbourne bank early yesterday after a tip-off that the gang was inside. The bank was empty when they arrived, but a magnetic drill had been used to bore a hole through the tumblers of the main vault. A bank official said yesterday that safe mechanics had opened the safe and found that the thieves had not succeeded in breaking into it. Police had received an anonymous phone call at 4am to say that thieves had entered the Hampton branch of the Commonwealth Bank. Detectives believe a police car on its way to the bank after the tip-off may have narrowly missed intercepting the gang as they made their escape. The police car chased five men in a station wagon but lost them near the bank. The magnetic drill gang is believed to have escaped with almost $3 million from raids made in Victoria and New South Wales, including $1.75 million from the Mwilumba Bank last year. Detectives said the thieves entered the bank yesterday by forcing apart steel bars and smashing a rear window. They said the gang had only drilled one of the safe's two tumblers before apparently being disrupted. sounds like someone saw something and reported it. Interestingly, the article says during the police chase they noted five men in a station wagon. So that's certainly a gang there, isn't it? There's five of them. We only have one confirmed and named police suspect in this case, and that happens to be the alleged ringleader or architect of the magnetic drill gang, and that's a man who was considered at the time to be the most influential criminal in Victoria. His name was Graham Kinnebra. That name might be familiar to a few people who know the odd thing about the Melbourne gangland killings. Kinnebra was involved in that, which we'll get to, but his alleged criminal career began well before that, and he would have been in his prime a much younger man back at the time of the magnetic drill gang's rise to infamy. Graham the Munster Kinnebra was a bit of an enigma. 
No one really knew how he'd procured his wealth. He certainly didn't flaunt it. Kinneborough dressed like a grandpa, wearing jeans, polos and simple jackets. But he sure had some cash behind him. He lived in Belmont Avenue in Kew, an affluent suburb in Melbourne's inner east, surrounded by neighbours who were doctors, lawyers and stockbrokers. But he kept it low-key, driving an old Ford Falcon and dressing like he was going to bingo instead of La Pocella with the likes of Mick Gatto and Mario Condello. He was happy to splash a bit of cash at his favourite restaurants, though. Kinnebra was a regular at the Flower Drum, once commenting that he'd spent around 50 grand on fried rice in his lifetime. While he claimed he was still a rigger, a dock worker, and certainly appeared that way, it was the widely held belief that the unassuming old-timer had been one of the country's best safecrackers back in his younger days. Kinnebra's earlier criminal record had charges for dishonesty, bribery, possession of firearms, resisting arrest and assaulting police. But these were just the things he'd been caught for. Question was, what had he gotten away with? Described as a perfectionist when it came to carrying out his crimes, Kinnebra was alleged to have honed his safe-cracking skills in warehouses in Melbourne prior to the time of the magnetic drill gang spree. It was also alleged that he'd shot another well-known thief named Steve Sellers after a job. When Sellers tried to claim a slice of the pie, Kinnebra obviously thought he wasn't entitled to. There were very loose links to Kenenborough through the aforementioned Sydney criminal George Freeman. Again, that couldn't be substantiated. But police did have Kenenborough pegged as not only the mastermind of the Magnetic Drill Gang, but for a couple of other notable thefts too. One was a gold bullion snatch in Queensland. The other one he actually got charged for, which was receiving stolen property. But the kicker here was this property was stolen from the home of Lindsay Fox. It was Mrs Fox's pendant, actually, quite a rare one, reports detailed. When police raided Kinnebra's home at one stage, this was around the time of the gangland killings, they found the pendant amongst a small amount of cash. But Kinnebra, cunning as ever, actually had another identical pendant made when this happened in order to raise doubt about the unique and rare nature of Mrs Fox's item, and this enabled him to beat the theft charge. But despite Graham Kinnebra wanting to stay out of the limelight, he'd end up getting dragged into it amidst the Melbourne gangland wars. And this was due to some of the friendships he'd made with some younger, hotter-headed individuals. The 1998 murder of Alphonse Gandetano was a crime Graham Kinnebra was alleged to have been involved with. Indeed, he was implicated in Gandetano's death in a coronial inquest, but not charged. It's been widely reported that criminal associate Jason Moran shot Gangitano dead and that Kinnebra had simply gone over there for a chat, left momentarily to go to the shops, came back and Jason had done the deed after an argument with Alphonse. Another version has Kinnebra present at the altercation. Jason's still pulling the trigger, however. A less publicised version has Kinnebra actually being the one who shot Gangitano and Mark Moran, Jason's brother, as his accomplice. Both Mark and Jason Moran were later killed during the gangland wars, as was their father, Lewis Moran, who was actually more so Graham Kinnebra's friend, as they were similar in age, you know, from that same generation. And while Kinnebra was implicated in Gangitano's murder, you know, they found blood of his actually on the uh, back door at the Templestowe home. He was never charged, as you said, Chloe. But the spotlight bothered Graham Kinnebra. He just wanted to fade back into the shadows of his semi-retirement and his comfy suburban home. 
Paranoia, however, had set in, as it inevitably does with most of those who move in these circles. He started carrying a handgun from this point for personal protection. In the end, this fact and the alleged skills he had safe-cracking in his heyday weren't enough to keep the Munster out of a feud that he wanted nothing to do with. He was shot dead outside his home in Kew while carrying a bag of groceries. His gun later found just six short steps away from where he lay. And this was in 2003. It wouldn't be until 2015 that a man would be charged with Kinnebrough's murder. His name was Stephen Aisling. There'd be many allegations levelled at the likes of drug boss Carl Williams and his hitman Andrew Veneman being involved alongside Aisling when Kinnebrough was murdered. Mick Gatto claimed at his trial for the murder of Andrew Veneman, for which he was ultimately acquitted on the grounds of self-defence, that Veneman had implicated himself in Graham Kinnebrough's murder right before the altercation that led to Veneman's death. Some reports note that Veneman was cleared of involvement in Kinnebrough's murder due to mobile phone tracking placing him elsewhere at the time, but other reports indicate that that in itself isn't a concrete alibi. But that's really by the by when we talk about Kinnebrough's potential involvement in this case. As to who some of the other members of this gang might have been... Who knows, maybe Steve Sellers was one person suspected of being involved, maybe some of Kinnebra's other Carlton crew friends or Painters and Dockers union members. We don't know for sure, it's all speculation, adding to the intrigue and mystery surrounding the Magnetic Drill Gang. In 2013, the regional police crime manager in Tweed, Brendan Cullen, said to the Tweed Daily News that they were reviewing the infamous heist and looking at all the evidence with a fresh set of eyes, but we've heard nothing more about that since. The old Bank of New South Wales building is still standing and is now a Westpac branch, and interestingly, Chloe, it was noted that the cash from this heist alone, just over $1.7 million, would be the equivalent of approximately $8.5 million in today's money, so that gives you an idea of the haul in relative terms. But that's it when it comes to the tale of the Magnetic Drill Gang. So my thoughts on this one, it's mostly that it's astonishing to me that this much money can be taken and no one has been arrested for it. And as we've learnt, that doesn't mean that there aren't suspects or connections. And as we've highlighted, there are people that make plenty of sense in relation to it. As we've learnt diving into other cases too, that often means that there isn't enough evidence to arrest someone. It took me a while to understand that, the fact that someone can be highly suspected but not charged for a certain reason for many, many years. The level of sophistication is pretty intense and interesting in this one. The specialised equipment alone is so unique and the fact that it hadn't been seen outside of Australia. I'm not going to really speculate on who might have done this one, but that's a lot of dirty money to be sitting on. Um, Your thoughts, Sean? Are you ready to speculate on this Who done it? Uh, well, I, mean, I've, I just I think it's one of those ones who I think uh, police probably anecdotally over the years have pieced a lot more together and probably have a lot more information on this one behind the scenes than than we really know and mm. and probably since um, Graham Kinnebrew's death in two thousand and three, who knows? Maybe maybe some more stuff has come out about that, but um, hasn't been made public or whatever. Um, I'm yep. I'm not sure, but. No, look, I, I don't really know. I, I don't know why. I'd like to know sort of why he was um, implicated as the suspect there. There was obviously something, um, whether it was just 
from from an informant or or on the grapevine or in those circles that that's sort of come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. He's obviously been linked and sort of known to have had those skills at some point, you know. So, mm. uh, no, look, I, I haven't really got um, got much of an idea. Very interesting case. Uh, like I've said before, I do quite enjoy these sort of heist-style ones. Uh, it's uh, just something a bit different and interesting to chat about. So, yeah, yeah. that's my thoughts. Nice one. Um, okay, well, let's move on to our happy thoughts. Um, what's yours this week, Sean? My happy thought for this week is the shed I'm building, which I've told you a little bit about, Chloe, mm. I'm sort of uh, decking that out to to work in, um, is is almost complete. So we've had the uh, bit of a trench for the electrics dug and filled over uh, this week and um, some sort of finishing touches. So it's just a little bit on the inside to go and I reckon maybe not next week but the week after I might be recording our, our episodes out there moving forward. So that's uh, pretty exciting and that's my happy thought. That's cool. Um, mine is that we, one of my dogs, I have three of them, um, our most recent weirdo that we adopted um, has been with us for two years this week. So we fostered her and then didn't want anyone else to have her and ended up adopting her. But she came to us through a puppy meal. It was pretty awful. She was in pretty bad condition. And um, I have one of those apps that shows you, you know, memories of the day and to see the photos and videos of what she was like two years ago compared to now, it's like a pull-up. It's just a completely different dog. So it's so cool to see and um, it's crazy. She's been around for two years with us already. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, no, that's really good. So she's all sort of uh, well and truly settled in now and part of the family. So a- any more? Number four on the cards? <laughs> I think I need a permit if I get any more, so no. <laughs> We're going to a whole nother level. <laughs> you need a permit for everything in Victoria at the moment. It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty hectic. True. <laughs> You'll need a permit permit next. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> yeah. um, on that note, uh, if you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. And if you'd like access to our amazing Patreon community where we have uh, all sorts of uh, extra stuff going on, we uh, have ad-free episodes and early release we're starting to do now where possible. Uh, we you know, we do bonus episodes, uh, our blue label episodes. We do our murder lounge stuff, um, lots of extra bits. You can jump over to our Patreon page, support what we do for $5 per month and get all of that tasty goodness. Tasty goodness? <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. That makes me feel weird, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's it for us this week, folks. Thanks again for listening. We'll uh, catch you all again next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.